Now, we have already sung of the grace of God. We've already um, prayed and lift up, uh, um, I think, excellent thoughts of, of uh, what we desire to become um, for the sake of the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we continue that vein as we study through the book of Ephesians, and we have landed here. We begin chapter 5. It's only six chapters, so we are making good progress uh, through this letter to the Ephesian Christians. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, this morning our topic is walking in Christian love is verses 1 through 7. And let me just say one thing before we dive into our message, and that's that the idea of walk is so prevalent in the, in the book of Ephesians. Um, if you recall back in Ephesians chapter 2, um, just after saying that we are saved by grace alone, not by any works that we do, so that, so that there is no basis of our boasting in ourselves at all. It is all of God, all of our faith in Christ, and His amazing grace that rescues us. After saying that, Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's a purpose statement, right? You are created or recreated in Christ for good works. And it says this, which God prepared beforehand, and we know that he prepared this beforehand, all the way in chapter 1, it had made clear that God in his sovereign love had selected us to redeem us from before there was an us, that we should walk in them. That's the first mention in the book of Ephesians of this idea of walking, and we are to walk in good works. That seems to be a purpose statement for the redeemed. Your salvation has bought you by the blood of Christ for the purpose of you walking, and we mean by walking, living, the manner of your living, a lifestyle, a commitment of living. You are to walk in those good works. Well, by the time we get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, um, that's, the, that's the turning point of Ephesians. The first three chapters are very doctrinal, Right? The, the four, five, and six are very applicational. And the first statement there in verse one of chapter four was, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, walk, but this time in a manner that is worthy of the calling of God's sovereign selection of you, of God's pouring out his love for you, that you would walk in a manner worthy of our Savior. And then chapter four, verse 17 um, to walk in holiness. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their minds. And it goes on to speak about how we are not to walk in those ways anymore, but we are to walk in unity and love. And here we'll be looking at uh, this idea of walking in love. And there, there will be more. Ephesians 5, 8 will say that we are to walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5, 15 reminds us to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, to walk in wisdom. My point is simply this, that, that the idea of how you live matters significantly in the book of Ephesians and matters significantly in why God has rescued us from sin and destruction. I mean, how you live is all of the purpose of why God has redeemed us, right? It's important to keep in our minds that God's desire for us is to live in a manner not that just honors him, certainly that, but that is satisfying and full 
And it grants joy to those that have given their lives to Jesus Christ in faith. We have to keep in mind all the exhortations of the book of Ephesians up to this point of chapter 5. We have to remember to walk in holiness, to walk in unity, to walk in love. We need to think about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And with all of that in the background, then we come into this this tremendous section of chapter 5, which will talk about walking in love. And that's the cover statement for all the things that will come um, about our household responsibilities, of what it looks like for a Christian husband to love his wife, a Christian wife to love her husband, Christian parents to love their children and Christian children to love their parents. What it looks like to exercise that kind of Christian love in our workplace or with one another. I mean, all of that is under the umbrella statement of what we encounter in verses 1 and 2. But it's not just verses 1 and 2. Even as we talk about walking in Christian love, you'll see that there are counterfeits to Christian love that the world imbibes, that drinks in and that we need to be cautious and thoughtful about. So let me read to you um, our exhortation from Ephesians 5, 1 through 7, and then let's come back and break down and unpack this, um, Lord willing, for our sanctification and good. Starting in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive deeply into your scriptures, and in particular, as we consider carefully... um, what it means that we are beloved children and they were to walk in imitation of your love for us. Lord, we recognize that the world sells us on so many things that are false, so many things that are lesser. And Lord, this morning, all we can ask is that you would expand our mind, our hearts, our vision of your greatness. Lord, it occurs to us, even as we read this passage, that immediately the contrast of your love And the false loves of this world, that which is satisfying, fulfilling, and eternally consequential versus that which is limited, temporary, and quickly fading, that it is an issue of us understanding your love better, of knowing you more fully, that will convince our souls and our hearts that there is nothing better than the love of Christ Father, we ask for your blessing and your work among us. We ask for your Holy Spirit that he would take this scriptures and implant it to our souls and that you would help us to walk out lives that are not just honorable to you in the externals, but from the soul is given over to a God that has loved us and given his son 
as a fragrant offering and sacrifice that we may be his. We praise you for your great love for us. May we extol you and walk in a manner worthy of that calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this idea of walking in love, um, and we'll uh, just give you the quick breakdown. I, I think we could divide it in two verses, two, three verses at a time. The first is the nature. What does it mean that we are beloved children? And what is the implication of that? Secondly, what is the example that holy ones, right? We are called saints in verse three and four. What, are, what is the example that should be set by those that are called holy? And then third, there's a consequence for idolatry. For everything that is false, every ambition, desire, etc., that is fulfilled outside of God, right? There's an eternal consequence. And one that we should be readily thankful for, that we are not under such judgment, but that also that we should weigh heavily because so many of those people, human beings that matter, they are under that judgment. And we should, we should consider that consequentially. So let's begin here with the nature of beloved children. Look at verse 1 there. And it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Simple declaration, simple command. We are to be imitators of God. We, we, are, to, we are to do that in response to what has come before. And what has come before, if you look at the last two verses as kind of a summary of chapter 4, just before we get here, the therefore leads out of this statement. Do not, I'm sorry, let all bitterness and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore... Be imitators of God. It's just a reminder that, that we are imitating God because of the way that God has loved us, the, the way that he has expressed his love for us in sending his son. We are to imitate God because that is the very best means of learning. You, know, you think about this, right? I, I like bringing up children like little babies, little toddlers, because I love little toddlers. We don't have little toddlers. My baby is like uh, going to be 15 years old in our household. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Like a 15-year-old not a baby, right? You can't cuddle them and they don't want, they don't want to be picked up and hugged anymore, you know? Um, but little babies, what, I, what is amazing about them is they learn things like language. You know how complex it is to speak human language? To put like thoughts together in ways that express it so that you and I can understand what we mean or how I feel or what I'm thinking and to be able to communicate that one to another and have some level of understanding is almost miraculous. Or how about the fact that, that you know, in natural development, our babies, they just learn to walk. You know, in the beginning, they can't even turn over. These little fish looking babies, Right? You could, like, we could literally, like, you could change their diaper and leave them on the, on the sofa because they can't turn over. They're just like, oh, man, when, when's dad going to get over here, man? Like, I'm just, right? They can't do anything. But after a while, they can turn over. And then they could scoot, and they could scuttle on their, on their bellies, and then they could crawl real fast, and they stand with help a little bit, and eventually they learn to walk. How or why do they even try? When they learn language... We think naturally, and it is, it is natural, and they learn, right? They learn walking naturally, and it is natural, but they learn that in imitation of those that are around them. They initially babble because their parents keep saying stuff with their mouths and making noises, 
And so they imitate that. And then it forms in them, from that imitation, these ideas that kind of come together and make sense. They, they, they see everyone else in the room always walking on two feet, right? Except for the dogs. But it makes more sense that they should imitate those that they are like. And so children imitating parents is not weird. It is the most natural thing. That's like come in households, people talk like each other, right? Or there's certain mannerisms that they copy, certain methodologies about how they tackle problems. I mean, these things are caught, not taught. This is what we mean by imitation. We are called to be imitators of a great God. And you say, well, be imitators of God, how? Well, Obviously, not in creating anything from ex nihilo out of nothing, right? Like, I don't have that capacity. But you are to be creative. God has created you literally in his image so that you know how to make things and to do things and to think about how different ways to do things. You are to be loving because he has loved us. And the command for loving has, has kind of exuded throughout all of Ephesians so far. And so in all of those things, whether it's in loving, in creativity, whether it's walking in holiness, abandoning in the old self of idolatry and living for my self-pleasures, right? Whether it's in, you know, walking to speak truth and be an example of joy and thankfulness and praying for others. It's like we are to imitate everything that we see that is good and excellent and wondrous in our God. Why? Because he is our heavenly father. Because we are saved not to a slavery, but to a relationship. Remember when we go through Romans, how Paul makes it an explicit statement that you are not saved unto a spirit of slavery, but instead you are given sonship, adoption. And this is what it's talking about. We are to be imitators of God because we are identifying ourselves with who our Father is. We're not just His children. We are, and Paul has to put that in there, we are His beloved children. Children loved by our Heavenly Father. If God loves you and you, extend, you understand the depth of that love, imitation of Him and His character is natural. It, it, is, it is the normal like progression of learning, imitating, and walking in this life. So this is the general statement, right? The general command, be imitators, become imitators of God as beloved children, not motivated by what others see in us, not motivated by some desire to, you know, to excel in something or to, to demonstrate how smart or intelligent, capable, or how much willpower we have. Not motivated by any of that nonsense. Simply motivated by who is God, our Heavenly Father? How good is He? I want to act like Him. I want to represent Him. I want to be an imitator of Him because I am His beloved child. How do you do that? Well, let me give you a couple things. I don't think you can imitate what you don't know. A deeper knowledge of who God is, what he is like, is absolutely essential to any, any obedience to the idea of trying to be imitators of him as beloved children. You, you have to actually know. You have to actually grow in your knowledge of him. You need the ministry of the word, whether it's in church 
whether it's in your scripture times, whether it's in listening to sermons or podcasts, whatever. the idea is that you are growing in your knowledge of God. And if you are new to this, then I would say, I would say first and foremost, begin with like an excellent just book on, on theology proper, on the attributes of God. Who is God? What is he like? What does it mean that he is holy? What does it mean that he is loving? What does it mean that he is gracious or faithful or true? Like deepen that. Because the deeper that gets, the more our capacity to imitate our Heavenly Father becomes. We need word, the ministry of the word. We need prayer, engagement with our Heavenly Father. We need praise to reinforce constantly and again how good our God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And then remember that this is not a you thing. It's not in my own strength thing. It is a grace alone thing. Like Everything we've seen in Ephesians so far about the gospel reminds us that it is in Christ, and it is Christ alone that is able to rescue us, that is able to transform us, that is able to give us this life. And if that's the case, then as we are leaning in on getting to know our God more and more, we are doing that in dependence upon his power, not our own. His strength, not our own. And I think the third element, right? So if it's a deeper knowledge of God in the ministry of the word, if it's trusting in him and his grace and power alone, then the third part is you need to be connected as a member of his body. He said, well, that one seems like not as significant. Oh, really? Like if if we studied through the book of Ephesians, if you have been listening through or just reading through the book of Ephesians, I think the very things that I've been talking about are the exact themes that Ephesians has walked us through until we get to all of these last three chapters that are these uh, applicational kind of practical theologies. Before you walk out what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling, you find out about the person that has called you. You learn more about God. And chapter 1, chapter 2, and what it cost him to rescue you from your sins. You learn about grace, that it's not anything that is valuable in you, but that God himself has cast his, his love upon us, something that we cannot deserve or earn, and he has done that to an infinite level in the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. And then he has placed us in connection with other individuals who have gone through that same exist that same experience of salvation by grace alone and faith alone right like we are united with one another so there is your elements of how do we learn to imitate god well you learn to do that by being knowledgeable about god through the ministry of his word by depending on him and not in your own strength by depending on grace and trusting in him regularly and by connecting and ministering to members of the body of christ and all of that is just ephesians one through four So that once we hit this phrase, that should all be fresh to us. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children because our Heavenly Father is the way that He is, and He has saved us the way that He has saved us, and He has placed us in proximity to one another, sovereignly, intentionally, and for good purposes, for our benefit. That's what it means to imitate God. The second one, that second verse, right? under this, the nature of what it means to be beloved children, verse 2 says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Present tense, imperative, command. Simple. It, it is to be a continual reality that we are constantly, immediately, and regularly choosing to walk in love. 
walking in love is baked into this idea of trying to imitate God, particularly because of the gospel and how the gospel looms over us. If we believe chapter 2 of Ephesians, that we have no deserving or right to demand anything of God, that we are, right, dead in trespasses and sins, that we, we are children of wrath by nature, if we believe these things of what we deserved and what we were in terms of our worthlessness, and that God has poured his love upon us through Christ, then we understand that walking in love right, is just an extension of the idea of being an imitator of God. See, I love this because it's like, be imitators of God. In other words, as beloved children... Learn to act like your heavenly father. Then the next thing is to walk in love. What kind of love is that? Well, just as Christ loved us. That's the second part of the verse, right, of verse 2. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How did Christ love us? Because that's the degree, that's the example, that's the manner in which we are to walk out our love. How we are to walk in love in this life. And the scriptures tell us clearly Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice. John 4, 9 and 10 says this, In this, the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a number of things that John, 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says. It says, number one, that the manifestation, right? Like, if you want to talk about God's love, the epitome, the, the, the fleshing out of his love for us is that he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. And this is the evidence of love, not that we love God. The point is that we didn't initiate right? Our salvation. We didn't go like, man, I love God so much. I got to go read a Bible or something and figure out, you know, um, how I could love him more. That, that's not how any of us began. All of us began as rebels and by nature, children of wrath. But God loved us, not we loved God. God loved us. He initiated his love for us by sending his son to be the propitiation. And you know that term, Propitiation is a term that means an appeasement of wrath. It's a sacrifice you have to make because you have offended a God in pagan worship. But, but used in a Christian context is to say that God's wrath, his holy righteousness, right? His demand for justice requires that every sin, in fact, Jesus says every word, every thought, that is not correct, that is not according to God's purpose and design, that is not according to God's standard of holiness, every wayward thinking, motive, word, or act must be paid for in full. The paid for in full part is what propitiation is for. It's an ancient word that means that that debt has been paid in full, that his wrath has been appeased that the wrath payment for sins has been received and accepted. There is nothing cheap about your salvation. A lifetime's worth of sin, my lifetime's worth of sin, must be paid for in full on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We call that substitutionary atonement. It's substitutionary because he bore God's wrath on my behalf as the substitute, my substitute in taking the wrath of our heavenly father and judge. It's substitutionary atonement in that his payment was sufficient so that our sins are actually paid for in full and forgiven. It's, it's not just wiped clean. It is paid, right? So in that imagery, think about like a laundry list of your entire life's worth of sin. And it's not that God just kind of scrubs it out or bleaches it out and then makes, pretends that it never happened. Quite the opposite. It is stamped, paid in full in the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's what it means that God has demonstrated his love for us. This is what it means when God commands us to walk out our lives or to live in a manner of life or walking, right? Meaning like how you get from point A, what you are now, to point B, when you go to be with the Lord or he comes in and receives you. Um, what it means to walk in love is measurable to Christ's love for us and the fact that he is our substitutionary atonement that he gave himself up for us. Look, look at that second part of verse, that last part of verse two, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is Old Testament language for offering that is acceptable. In fact, that is well-pleasing to God. Um, whether you find it in like Exodus 29, Leviticus 1, Numbers 15, you find it all over the Old Testament, especially in the, in the Pentateuch, in the first five uh, books of the scriptures. And there's this constant idea that as they gave an offering, an offering of praise, of worship, of sacrifice because of sins to the Lord, as they recognize their failings and their need to, to turn to God and to worship how good God is, to them, as they did that, then the fragrance would be, right, an aroma to the Lord. Not because he has these deified nostrils and he's like, hmm, right? Like, but because the point is that he is well pleased with that. And I think it's interesting that of all the ways that, that scripture describes that, it's through the sense of smell. You ever walk into like a public restroom? I know, I, see, I already, you already know what I'm about to say, right? I won't even go further than that, right? And then you just know, oh, man, this is like, this, this, is, this is horrible, right? And then you walk into a bakery, and you're like, mmm, this is good. Or a coffee shop. Whatever it is that, that is about smells, it recalls like our thinking. It connects us to memories, right? It, it draws upon us. You will salivate if there's the smell of that certain dish that you love so much, Right? You, you feel joyful when you smell that, I don't know, that mountain fresh air or maybe those certain flowers that you love, whatever. Like, like that directs more closely to our affections in ways that feels passive and like it's like, whoa, kind of takes us by surprise, more so than what we see with our eyes or what we hear with our ears. It is an interesting sensory that God has gifted us with and he, he uses that as the imagery of what it's like for him to be pleased with an offering given up to him. That it moves his affections in ways that he can only characterize for us as it's almost like he's smelling something really good that reminds him of something really enjoyable. And that enjoyable, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, right? The language of Old Testament sacrifice was the giving up of his son for our sins. We, we are to live or walk out love 
like that, like Christ's love for us. We already read, right, the end of uh, chapter 4, right, putting away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, um, and all malice. And then listen to it. Like, this is what the, the love of Christ lived out by us. This is what it smells like, right? Verse 32 of chapter 4 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, there ought to be a spirit, right, in the body of Christ. There ought to be a spirit in IBC that if someone who doesn't know the gospel or is just kind of interested in church has been invited by a friend or coworker, if they wander in, they go away thinking like, man, there's like something to that, almost a spiritual fragrance. There is something about these people that they are walking out love like I have not really experienced. Because this is, again, the purpose of why we are saved. So we should walk in good works, which Christ has prepared beforehand. We are to grow in living imitation of our Heavenly Father. And as part of that, it is to love as Christ loved us. How will they know that we are Christians, according to Jesus? They'll know that you are my disciples by your love, right? This is to be the strongest characteristic of every, every Christian that walks on earth. That they have a, a, a genuine compassion for the lost. They, they think about unbelievers and recognize that such were I except for the grace of God. They, they look upon a fallen humanity, broken society, and instead of just being angry, and they might be angry, and we should be angry if there's injustice or things that are just not right. But there's deeply within us a motivation of love because that's what our Heavenly Father is like, and that's what Christ is like, right? I spent a lot of time on the first point, the nature of being beloved children, because I think that's kind of the main emphasis that would draw us through um, some of the things that are in the rest of this passage and really the rest of Ephesians, especially in chapter 5 and, and half of chapter 6. But it is about the nature of beloved children. Let's take a look then at a more particular element of the counterfeit of love in the example of the holy ones in verses 3 and 4. Look at uh, verse 3 there. Verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, it's an interesting thing because the way that um, that, that is, uh, that those three things, sexual immorality, impurity, all impurity, and covetousness are stated, I think the ESV does an excellent job. Um, there is an and between sexual immorality and impurity. There's an or before covetousness. So I think we're talking about two categories. It, it could, it's possible, and some will argue, that it is just one category of sexual sin, sexual immorality, all impurity, right? Whether it's impurity or covetousness, it's like all of one kind of one uh, uh, subject matter here in verse three. Others will argue that we're talking about three separate issues, sexual immorality, general impurity, right? And then general covetousness. I, I think that ESV does a good job. I think the first two speak to sexual sinfulness, and then the, 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 the third one, covetousness, is talking about covetousness general. And I think what, what Paul is doing is he's going from the very specifics of sexual sin and kind of getting a little bit more general in terms of all filthiness, right? And then going even more general and talking about covetousness. And he is kind of putting his arms, arms around all of that and calling it idolatry. 
That, that's what I think he is, he is doing. That last phrase in verse 3, it is as is proper among saints. That's why I'm saying it is the example of holy ones. The term saint literally means holy ones. And so that we are clear, when the scriptures talk about holiness, it is not so much talking about just moral purity. That's part of it, but that's a subcategory. Holiness is not just the absence of sinning. Holiness is separation, is distinction. God is the Holy One of Israel. God is holy, 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 not just because he doesn't sin. That's impossible for him to sin. But because he is so different, he's so set apart, so consecrated. And so if we're called saints, then we are to be these consecrated, holy individuals. And this is what is proper for us, or this is what is improper for us, that we avoid these things. And I think that's why it's talking about saintly conduct. Sexual immorality, the term is porneia, and all impurity, and the term for impurity, right, is, uh, is like the, the adding the un, right, adding the, the, you know, the negation prefix to catharsia, right? It's the uncleanness, all filthiness. So it's saying sexual behavior of any kind that falls outside of what God has declared and has honored in Scripture, which is between a man and his wife, all of that, any act of sexuality, that's not to be named among us. All impurity, I think, goes a little bit broader to say that now we're not just talking about acts, but we're probably talking about attitudes of anything that is, that is in this area of being unclean or impure, Every evil thought, and probably here, because of the end, talking about sexual acts to sexual ideas, and then going broader to, or even covetousness, meaning just, just kind of desires, wanting, greed. I think the scriptures speak of the idea of immorality, impure, all impurity, and covetousness. Oh, right after, right, it speaks of walking in love, in imitation of Christ, in imitation of God the Father, and uh, just as Christ has loved us. I think it speaks of these areas right after that because there is some kind of logical connection. I mean, it could be that, that Paul had intended a hard stop, right, a reset, take a coffee break, and come back, and then start reading from verse 3. But the word but, right, I think that connects us as the opposite. There is, at least in this portion of Scripture, right, a comparison, a comparison to say that there is something about walking in Christian love, and these particular things are the exact opposite of that. This is an example of what you do not walk in if you're to walk in love. It is, a, it is I think, the compare and contrast between what is genuine love, what that looks like, and what the earthly and human and sinful counterfeits might be. Because, see... Sexual immorality is a twisting of the pleasure of what love is meant, love and intimacy is meant to express. Impurity is to take that which is the purity of a love of a, of a father, right, to his beloved children, and then to change that, to tweak that. That's literally our term for perversion. And a covetousness is just loving things that we ought not to love. And it could be more material. It could be, you know, ambitious, you know, uh, for uh, reputation. It could be for whatever. 
I don't think it's odd that Scripture speaks in contrast of God's love and walking in God's love with sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. This is love as it should be, and this is what love can be twisted into in terms of our human understanding of that. And what connects them all is our relationship to one another. See, so idolatry is connected often with adultery in the Old Testament. Do you realize that? Like if you read through the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, Israel is constantly called, Israel, Judah is constantly called um, uh, being unfaithful, adulterers, because of their idolatry. These things are connected together. Idolatry is often associated with adultery, sexual sin, in the Old Testament, and pagan worship often connects temple prostitution to pagan worship, to the worship of the thing. And, and in Ephesus, right, they worship Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And so she has like, I don't know, nine breasts or something in her statue at the temple. It's kind of weird. But the idea is that there are, are male prostitutes available for you to indulge in what they would consider worshipful acts. And you can wonder, man, why is that the case? Why is sexual sinfulness And false worship often connected because it distorts the very thing that God has been central for. The thing that we have discovered in the first couple chapters of the book of Ephesians is that God is desirous, right, to demonstrate his glorious love for us so that in the ages to come, we will never cease to glorify our God for the grace that he has bestowed upon us in Christ. The deeper we get into what it means that God has rescued us from our sinfulness, the deeper we understand the grace of Christ and the love of our Heavenly Father. That is the purity of what worship and glory for God is meant to be. Everything else is a false worship. Our our runaway lusts are false worship. Whether it's for sexual things, whether it's for material things, whether it's for pleasurable things or just having a good life or a good time, those are all false pleasures, all of which find, we find in our own experience, right, to be temporary and fleeting. They don't last. The high never lasts long enough, right? The, the, the ecstasy never can last long enough, and yet we're pursuing them as if it's worship, as if it's the thing that we need most, when in fact these are the counterfeit loves. What we need is the love of God in Christ, which satisfies unto eternity, which is deeper and greater than all of that put together, an entire lifetime's worth of, of pursuing self-pleasure, Self-glorification and idolatry could not satisfy. And yet the love of God in Christ is capable of satisfying all the above. So the saint, it says, right, needs to be free of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, that these things should not even be named among them. I think it means that there is no reputation or even confusion that holy ones would be known for immorality or impurity or for greed. That they are so different, they are so holy, they are so, so consecrated or separate from the way that the world conducts its business. And then the idea is that we are to be different. And think about this. Think about how many times we've heard of Christian leaders or pastors 
being disqualified from ministry because of sexual sin or scandal. On the one hand, we want to be gracious and recognize that none of us are beyond sin. That's true. But on the other hand, we need to recognize that the scriptures call us saints for a purpose. So we might walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that we would walk in His love. And in His love, meaning that we honor Him, that our association with each other and with God is marked by Christ's love for us, by a purity, by honorableness, by selflessness, by kindness, by a desire to build up and to demonstrate an affection that is pure and excellent. This is what it means to walk in Christ's love. This is what we are meant to be. And how devastating the testimony of moral failure in these areas, especially amongst those that we give respect to in the body of Christ. Because we are called to walk in Christian love and not, right, to be involved in that which the world makes an idol of and thinks that these are the things that you're to be about. Saintly conduct, verse 3, right? But also saintly speech in verse 4. Let there then be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The first word means filthiness, and we can translate that obscenity, and it probably correlates to the idea of sexual immorality, to speak in ways that are shameful or disgraceful or debased that emphasize, right, sexually impure things, that should not be in our mouths. The second term, foolish talk, is a little bit broader and might go with the idea of, of you know, of all filthiness, um, which was mentioned earlier, right? all impurity. Because foolishness in Scripture, and we've said this regularly, and we should remind ourselves, foolishness in Scripture is not a matter of ignorance, right? It's not a mental or intellectual problem. Foolishness in Scripture is a spiritual moral problem. So that when places like, you know, Psalm 14.1 says, you know, the fool says in his heart there is no God and that he commits abominable sins. It's trying to say that there is, the concept of foolishness means that you have rejected who God is and that he matters not to you. You convince yourself that he is inconsequential or can do nothing about your sinfulness. So you give yourself over to do whatever you possibly want to do. That's foolishness in Scripture. So let there be no foolish talk. Let there not be talking that suggests that God doesn't matter, that his opinion doesn't matter, that what he thinks or what he would desire is inconsequential, as if God doesn't exist. Let us not talk like we live for ourselves and for our own lives to be the master of our own fate, as if God, our God and creator, is inconsequential to anything that we speak of. Beware of how you speak about your life, your purpose, your joys, your delights. When they are separated from God, that's questionable in terms of where our heart gravitates, what our heart cherishes, what indeed we, our heart actually worships. The third category is, um, um, is crude joking, crude joking. Now this could mean in a very specific way, in a very narrow way, like sexual jokes. But more likely, this is just talking about coarse joking around, about going too far. It could be like sar- sarcastic ridicule. It, it, is, it emphasizes that it is the kind of joking that cuts down, embarrasses others. 
It's humor and bad taste at someone's expense. And if you think about it, that runs exactly counter to everything about walking in Christian love, right? Everything about building one another up, etc. Like you can instead use your words to tear people down, to hurt individuals, to, to, to cause serious doubt or injury to them. You could do that, but why would you do that if you are a saint? Why would you do that if you have been called by God to live in such a way as to be an example, not just in conduct, but also in speech of those things that build up and give life and direct people to the glory of God in Christ? These things are out of place, is what Scripture says, right? Verse 4, in the middle of that, it says, like, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving, Apparently, the remedy for what we do with our mouths, instead of speaking, you know, shamefully, silly, or coarsely, is to speak words um, of thanksgiving. Rarely do you find such a simple kind of, I don't know, remedy for the very thing the Scripture is talking about, right? But thankfulness is tremendous, In fact, in Romans 1, when it talks about why God's wrath is presently being poured out upon humankind and their sinfulness, right? It says that they knew God, right? Because God's fingerprints are on everything around them. There's something supernatural and amazing about existence and life and purpose and desire and and our affections and why we are created to wonder why we are created. All of that put around and into us demonstrates to us that there is something about God. But even though they knew there was a God, they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and they did not give thanks. Look at it. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I get that, man. That that seems very condemnable, very culpable. But they didn't give thanks? Like, that's a really strong indictment against human beings? That is, if there is a God Who deserves your thankfulness? If God is everything that Ephesians and really all the scriptures have revealed him to be, and as you're growing in the depth of your knowledge of God and his goodness to you, as you understand more and more deeply who God is and how wondrous he is as a being, as our creator, and the purposes for which he has saved us. The rescue of our lives, not because we deserve, but because he is that kind. Once you drink in all of that, what should naturally flow out of us are words of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and praise are closely related. That's like if you come into church on a Sunday and you don't feel like singing, man, there's a much deeper issue to your soul than simply that you are tired, you've had a hard week, and you choose to say, no, thank you. Let me just hear you guys sing. The, the, the affirmation, the verbal affirmation of singing a song unto the glory of the Lord, of giving thanks for the, for the victory that we have in Christ, for thanking God, for casting his grace and his love upon us, that does more good for your own souls than anything else that you might be able to use your words for, Right? You can ask for water when you're thirsty. You can ask for a bite if you're hungry. But even greater still would be the giving of thanks for who God is and what he has accomplished because that will feed your soul in ways that water and food cannot finally satisfy. 
Right? If all the arguments of Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 is meant to bring God glory because of his kind and gracious love towards us, then the greatest distortion of that would be to walk in a manner that is unworthy of that calling. To not walk as beloved children. To not walk as holy ones. And so whether it's in our conduct or whether it's in the words that we use, Instead of speaking coarsely, silly, foolishly, idolatrously, we are to speak words that draw our attention back to the goodness of our God in Christ. Thankfulness. Giving thanks regularly, right? Some of you guys not, not like saying thank you for your meal. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's okay. But the idea of thankfulness, the reason why we pray over our meals, that's the reason why we pray you know, before we go to bed, the reason why we pray and we include thankfulness regularly in our prayers is so that we don't have an idolatry of God, give me this, give me this, give me this, but we build ourselves into the proper worship and love of saying, God, you are good. Thank you for being good to me regardless of my circumstance. Thank you for being my God and my Savior. Thankfulness is the protection of your mouth, which is the protection of your heart, which guides us back to being beloved children. Last one, right? The consequences of idolatry. And this is heavy, but very straightforward. The consequence of idolatry, right, starting in verse 5, is this. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They are excluded from the kingdom. Uh, let me say a couple of things. One, notice the certainty of it. You may be sure of this. In other words, you, you can bet on this. This is 100% certain. You may be certain of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, like all the things that he had just mentioned, and I think all three of those are encompassed in this idea that this is idolatry. And we talked about that already, why idolatry is often associated with sexual sin with impurity, or even with covetousness, right? Like those things are, are the worships, right, of our souls apart from God. If you love, right, someone, something contrary to God's will, and I'm speaking particularly like if you're a single person and you're tempted to date that unbeliever, but it's because you know that that's sin, but that's okay, because God needs you to be happy. God doesn't need you to be happy. In fact, you don't need that kind of happiness, you will regret that decision now or in the future because it is all idolatry. The question is, what has God declared? What has he declared about sexuality? If he has said it, if the God's word has said it, that should settle it. The fact that we need wiggle room for ourselves, it just speaks of arrogance and idolatry. It's like, well, I'm special and I'm more special than other people, so that's good for you, but for me... God wants to give me a special dispensation of grace. God understands because this is my difficulty. This is my struggle. That's nonsense. That's a talk of idolatry. That, that is a heart built for false worship. So be certain of this, that that sort of thinking, sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, that's idolatry. It has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in the kingdom of Christ and God. I don't, I don't know if you could say it more strongly than how scripture says it here, that that has nothing to do with the redeemed soul. 
Now, now, listen, can Christians fall into a period of sin? Absolutely. And is God, you know, capable of forgiving? Absolutely. All right? Dudes, tax collectors became friends of Jesus and were redeemed by his grace. All right? So some among you, all right, have sinned. And it, that's, that's the nature of us being redeemed by God through a life of sin. I think the point here is that if this is what you're known for, this is what you live for, then your idolatry is evident, right? Whether it's sexual sin or it's covetousness, greed, I have to have this, my material pursuits, I need to succeed because I have to have all these things. This is what I live for. These are the experiences that are so valuable. That's your God. And don't pretend that Jesus Christ is your God. You have your God. You have your pursuits. You have your ambitions. Your affections are tied, right? Your worship, your praise, your thanksgiving, it's all tied to those other things. You have your idolatrous idol. You have your God. And it is not Jesus Christ. And so why would you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God or in Christ? The kingdom is shorthand for saying all of eternity in the blessedness of God our Father in fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. There's an element in which the kingdom is now, like in Colossians 1, 13, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has delivered us into his kingdom. So we're already there in terms of salvation. But in Revelation 21, that final kingdom is to come, where there's a new Jerusalem prepared as a bride is adorned for her husband, and the dwelling place of God comes down to be with us, and we are with God, and we are his people, and he is our God, and he wipes away every tear, right? There's no more death. There's no more mourning, crying, pain evermore for the former things have passed away. That's the eternal kingdom that is to come. So there's an element of already. There's an element of not yet. And that kingdom is only for those that worship Jesus Christ. I mean, that actually only worship Jesus Christ. Not those that call themselves Christian, but more or less have an idolatrous heart for the things that they need and desperately desire in this life. There are only two options, friends, for how your life, your eternal life will end. Either in that kingdom of God or in eternal judgment. That is the only two options. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. And he's telling them this, not because he's afraid that some of them are this, but he's reminding them of what they have left. This is the life you have left behind. This is the idolatry that you have abandoned for worship of Jesus Christ. But he's also telling them that so that they would remember that these are the things that they've been rescued from and these are the things that they want to rescue others from. Recipients of wrath, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let the world deceive you, right? Let's stop talking about the nonsense of our right to do whatever we want. That's idolatrous. We are created in God's image, then we have only one right, and that is to worship our God, to give him thanks, and to seek to glorify him, right? Let, Let yourself not be deceived. 
because of these things, immorality, impurity, greed, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In fact, God's wrath comes is in the present tense, just as it is in Romans 1. It suggests that God's wrath is aimed at these things and that is already being poured out, that the wrath always comes. It comes certainly and absolutely and is unavoidable because that's what that deserves. Let no one deceive you. Having said that, let's make sure that we're closing off with what we wanted to start off with. This is not about preaching the consequence of idolatry and wrath. That was important because we need to talk about the truthfulness of what is opposite of following Jesus Christ. But all of this, all the stuff that we just mentioned is the opposite of walking in Christian love. Beloved children, right? Redeemed saints. We need to walk in a manner that is more like our Savior, is more like our Heavenly Father, and looks more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I would encourage you, man, if there is need for repentance, then repent. If there's need for you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, then trust in Him, right? Repentance is turning away from your idolatrous sinfulness. Trust is placing all the eggs of your basket into one basket, and that is in Jesus Christ, to trust him to cleanse you from all sins and penalty once and for all. That is the only thing that walking in Christian love is about. Looking to our God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And we turn to the Lord and live in a manner that honors him. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your grace to us in rescuing us from our sins. We thank you for the word of God and now bestows upon us, Lord, um, a knowledge of you. We thank you that we can grow in that truthfulness, in our affection for you, in our delight for all the things that you have accomplished for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray for every heart that has heard this message, that has heard about what it means that God loves us and has heard about what it means that we might live and walk in that love And they similarly heard about all the the false loves, all the false passions and desires that could lead us astray and into idolatry instead of worshiping the one true God. Lord, would you make our hearts amenable to your good grace? And would you rescue us from our sin so we might please you today and every day and for all of eternity because of your grace in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.